0: Welcome to R-Connect Sessions, episode 101. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. So you guys, fresh back from uh, the convention in Orlando. uh uh,
1: uh. uh, uh, uh. It's not called it's the, convention not the convention anymore, though, remember. They've rebranded it.
0: It's the conference. It's now a conference. <laughs> fresh back from the conference.
1: <laughs> Which... It bugs me because I feel like they come out with. Sorry, we're, I'm jumping right into the AIA criticism, but they come out with a brand that's great and good, and people enjoy it, and then they immediately change it to something else.
2: Yeah. Was there like an official explanation for why it's conference now instead of a convention?
1: I haven't been interested enough
2: to ask, honestly. They're even changing how they refer. I mean, you could tell because the way they make special emphasis on certain language, right? So they say the institute, you know, and I've been there yeah. a handful of times, and you can tell when language even though they try to make a very subtle shift in in, in, in how they talk about things, it's still pretty patently obvious when they consistently refer to things. So it was always the conference. It's always the institute. Mm. So it's it's just very kind of like, okay, somebody got a hold of them and said, you know, we don't have to change too much about the brand. The brand's fine, but we just want to change some very local language about the brand.
1: So for whatever reason... They rebranded
2: it. I like it. I like the idea of calling it a conference. You know, convention just sounds, uh, you know, it's everybody has a convention. Conference actually sounds like, and it could just be your hope. I mean, this, this one seemed, I don't know, you tell me, Donna. I mean, I was there for the whole thing, but it felt like the difference between this one and past ones that I've been to is that there was a really circular kind of theme about the convention or the conference. There was <laughs> just this kind of theme that... Every presenter, with the exception of one white lady and her, you know, her bourgeois kind of pastiche of like richy rich places, that everything kind of seemed focused around a community and about an architecture and about membership in an institute dedicated to improving the lives of people.
1: I. Totally agree. It really did. They really, they really pushed that angle this year. I would say mostly really good ways. I was very pleased that a lot of the sessions I saw, and I was only there for one day. I went down specifically for Michelle Obama, and then I left the next day. A lot of the sessions I saw people tweeting about and talking about later were very much social justice, non-traditional focus, humanistic focus type work. So,
2: yeah, and I I think the the one thing to keep in mind too is that I think the jagoffs, like the the Trumpers, will. Latch onto SJWs, and and that's not what it was really. I mean, there wasn't a politicization of, and it could have easily been that way. I mean, you could certainly take anything that's, and I can tell you, we'll we'll get to this, but you could take just about anything that that has a its essence drawing out of a community oriented discipline or a practice that involves in those areas, you can look at it and say, well, they're just a bunch of fucking liberals and they want to just do their social justice work. It's like, no, there wasn't a political angle to that. It was just like, here's a group of people actually making lives better for other people. And I mean, it's... you can, there wasn't a politics involved in that. It wasn't like, hey, this is good and you're bad. Yeah, I'm doing that. But the, I think the Institute's message was pretty clear that, you know, here's a, here's a range of practices actually doing good in the world and they're not making a whole bunch of
0: politics about it. I'm just curious about the social events. Did politics come up at all in your experience? I mean, it's just such a divisive time right now in American politics that I would assume that it would come up.
2: You know, the Tom Voynir, you know, touched on just, uh, you know, I think when Michelle Obama talked about she did a great job of like liberating herself from this idea that she had to be critical and she would just talk about the new family moving in and she wouldn't really kind of talk about the country where it was. And she just talked about, you know. Positive things and about, you know, where she was going and what she would like to see happen. And
1: because she's a hundred percent classy. Yeah. In that way, that is totally Michelle Obama. She goes high when others go low. And I will tell you from talking to our executive director and hearing through a few other people that. Not only did many, I won't say many, I don't know the numbers, but not only did some architects not go this year because Michelle Obama was speaking, but people have canceled their memberships, their AIA memberships over the fact that Michelle Obama spoke. So I think you and I see it or us, we see it as not overtly political because to us, it's just sort of common sense. But there's a lot of people out there who saw this, I think, as an incredibly political statement by the AIA to feature these people. And the former first lady.
2: Well, next year, I hear the New York convention is going to be about prison industrial complex. So we'll get the you know Blackwater and, <laughs> and Trump people there, and you know, so we'll be we'll even that score up right away.
1: <laughs> well, the other rumor I've heard is that it's the conference now is less likely to be in sort of I used the term second tier and really offended someone, so I don't want to use that term. But basically, they're they're mo- more often going to be in large cities from now on.
2: No backwater hick towns anymore, people. Exactly,
1: like Indianapolis. (laughs) I was really hoping we could bring it here, but I think that is not to be. It sounds like it's really only going to be bigger cities because they just pull more people.
0: Bigger than Orlando?
1: Yeah, like Atlanta, Chicago, LA, Boston, New York. Miami. You know, those cities. Mm -hmm. But that's rumor. That's rumor. I don't know. Can we just talk about Michelle? Let's just talk about Michelle and get it out of the way. Just jump right into it. So two things. One, I don't know if it was the nature of the conference in general or... Michelle in particular. But I did see a lot more African American faces at this event than I have seen at previous conferences or AIA events, I would say. And which was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. But I also think that Michelle was amazing because she is clearly not the first lady anymore. One of the articles on her the next morning said she was visibly relaxed, and that was I think totally true. She was She's like she's a private citizen now. She doesn't have to calibrate every word so carefully as she used to have to. And I think she spoke quite frankly on a few things that were that were great.
2: Well, so what did she talk about? You know what? I think the biggest takeaway and the biggest difference between from this from her to Julia Louis Dreyfus was her command of the not just of the room, but of ideas. Yeah. She talked about cities in a way that was so smart <laughs> that you had a hard time believing that, you know, wow. Wait. She knows about this stuff. Well, yeah, she she worked for in the city of Chicago. I think she talked about she worked in the historic preservation or the planning. So she understands what it takes to and she understands that, you know, how neighborhoods work and, you know, there's a uh, around the loop. If you only pay attention to the loop. And you disregard and don't pay attention to these outer, you know, the South Chicago and, and how that affects. And, and how, you know, you could have all this development, but if you're forgetting about. So she really talked about it in a way that was like, wow, OK, she's not here, for fill, you know, filling, uh you know, picking up a paycheck. She's actually talking about ideas.
1: And she told a very poignant story that she may have told before about standing when she got a. A job in a law firm in Chicago, standing on the 47th floor facing South Chicago and looking down and saying to herself, that's my neighborhood that I come from. And I want the work I do to still be involved in that neighborhood in a positive way, which to me, that whole notion of, you know, golden towers, standing up at the top of a golden tower and looking down on people and saying either, thank goodness I'm up above those those rabble down there, or I want to be down there. And she chose the latter. She chose I want to be with those people. The other thing she I thought spoke very poignantly about in terms of neighborhoods was that, you know, kids and people in general, but especially kids in neighborhoods that are forgotten and ignored by the city and the community, that those kids know. They know that they are not cared about. I think that's the word she actually used, is those kids know no one cares about them. And we ignore the fact that they know they are getting cheated at our own peril,
2: right? That's a that's a great point I don't think anyone really puts together. They only look at the crime in those neighborhoods, but they never... F- think about how these particular people have been forgotten about for so long. So why should they care that you don't, that you care that somebody's getting shot? I mean, they don't, they know you don't care about them. And the only time you care about them is when somebody's dead.
1: And that's our white privilege, frankly, and middle-class privileges that we know that if, you know, that we know that we're cared about, we know that our streets will get fixed or our, you know, if a crime happens in our neighborhood, it'll get taken care of. And you're talking about young Yeah, especially young people who look at their surroundings and say, it's obvious that those in power do not care about me. And that's that's something that needs to change. The other thing I loved about what she said, which I feel like was her, you know, there's a whole conversation happening around speaking fees now for the Obamas. But I feel like as First Lady, she could not have said this, what she she told a story about getting a job. And I can't remember which job it was. But it was after she had two babies. She was like, I'm done. I cannot handle the dual working family, working parent you know, family life. And she said to Barack, I'm done. I'm not working anymore. And then she got a call that this, was it the city that at that point that really wanted to hire her?
2: No, it was a hospital. It was a hospital.
1: And she went into that interview and flat out said, I'm going to ask for a ton of money and I'm going to ask for every perk I can imagine. And if they still want to hire me, then fine. And they did, of course. She asked for everything she wanted and she got it. And the message to me was, especially to women architecture, but to women architects, but to everyone, if you're worth something, ask for that. And don't be shy about it. And I feel like as First Lady, she couldn't say that as strongly as she did in this interview.
0: Is this her first major public
2: appearance?
1: Her first public appearance since becoming a private citizen again.
2: So she was only eclipsed by her husband by three days, I think. Yeah. <laughs> or else she would have been the first Obama to come out in a public speech. And we, and we were fortunate enough to have her.
1: And some of the complaints I'm seeing about people on Twitter and whatnot, people saying, oh, how much did we pay Michelle to speak? The AIA was mentioned in a dozen newspapers the next morning. On the television. We were mentioned in Vogue magazine. On television.
2: I (laughs) mean, it was ridiculous. Like,
1: that's advertising.
2: (laughs) That's free.
1: (laughs) It's totally worth it. And not to mention, the row in front of us, Ken and I had such a good time at her actual talk. The row in front of us was five African-American women, two of them architects, One of them an engineer, and I think the other two were just women who wanted to come see Michelle speak. So there were tickets sold to this event that were not just architects. You know, I'm thinking she got a broad appeal to a lot of people who are not architects and just wanted to come see her speak, and this was an opportunity to do it.
2: Yeah, and for little, little, you know, for Black children and little girls to see her first speaking event after being the First Lady at an architect's conference, I mean— to me, that's, a, that's something that you can't pay enough money to get that to happen. Nobody's talking about architects except when shit falls down yeah, <laughs> or, or they're getting caught for not being architects. But here we have the first lady of the United States, the, the most popular woman on the fucking planet, and she's at our <laughs> conference talking to us like we're people.
0: <laughs> so what was the overall response to Michelle's speech?
2: It was probably the most well-attended keynote. That they've ever had. There were people coming that kept just kept piling into the place. I mean, I think every single, just probably, I would say nearly every single person that attended the conference was there. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of the vendors were there as well.
1: And other people. People. I mean, the convention center staff, I was speaking to some of the conven- the people who work at the convention center. They said they were all work- juggling a very serious schedule of who got to go in to just listen for 10 minutes and then they had to leave and the next person would come in. So they were, you know, they knew it was a big deal for Everyone to get to hear her speak.
0: So And she was received well at, at the end of the speech people left oh God. feeling yeah. good about
1: standing ovations. I mean, it was like a rock concert. It was it was seriously like a rock concert. People were so excited. The feeling in the room was so excited. I mean, Paul, you saw Bill Clinton speak, right? hmm at the Atlanta convention. This was yep. five times as exciting as that. <laughs> Big deal.
0: So what about the other speakers?
2: Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's let's before we before we roll on to them, you know, we can't let the AIA and Tom Veneer off the hook here. I'm not. Yeah, Um, I'm I'm pretty I've been pretty critical of one of the questions because this goes to the heart of what the problem with the AIA is with the leadership at the AIA. And to
1: be fair, with many, many organizations that are traditionally led by white men, Yeah. let's just say that. (laughs)
2: Yeah, you said it. I mean, any organization that's been traditionally led by white men is certainly going to have this blind spot. So it's not his fault alone. But and this goes to and I think that we could talk about I could talk endlessly about this particular question because there's so many remedies for this question that you know they're failing the membership the institute if they don't just acknowledge these blind spots so the question was basically i'm going to paraphrase it because i think it's it's easier to paraphrase than to kind of quote him verbatim basically was as you know michelle we have a problem with uh, attracting african americans to our profession do you have any ideas about how we can remedy that and it sounds pretty innocuous as a as a question it's like wow you know she's you know one of the most important people on the planet First black first lady, certainly she can provide some insight. But the problem, you know, is is all you got you don't have to go very far. Just Google magical Negro and you could find out what that phrase means. And it, it just it just goes to show that there is this lack of understanding from the leadership about what the membership is actually doing. And I I mean, what's what's crazy about that question as unexpected as it was, and the way it was phrased was that I was standing in line speaking to a black architect my age who worked with Phil Freelon. And he talked about how he was product designer. And and, and when he was in school, he asked, you know, where, where does this go? What do I do with this degree? And he wasn't really sure about it. And someone said, you got to go to architecture school. So he went to architecture school and he, he got to work for Phil Freelon. And his North Carolina office. And he asked Phil, he said, you know, I made it here and I'm, you know, I want to do better. I want to, I want to help people, you know, help young black kids get into this profession. And he said, what should I do? And he said, Phil said, you can't wait till they're in college. You can't wait till they're in high school. You have to get them young. And that's exactly what Michelle Obama said. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, almost exact word for word what she said. She said, most mm. black children know what doctors are. And i am been mean, telling you what I'm saying, Michelle Obama said, this young, this African-American architect said the same thing to me. His name was Churchill. And he said the same thing to me. Most young black kids know what a doctor is because they see a doctor. They know what a cop is because they see a cop. But most of these kids don't know what an architect is because they never see an architect. And that's exactly what Michelle Obama said. You you can't wait till high school and college before you get to these kids to try to talk to Mm -hmm. them about a career in architecture. You have to get them young. So it's just, it's, it's mind numbing that, you know, one, the question is asked the way it is. All you got to do is reach out to some of the millennials or someone who's in the uh, Gen Xers, whoever are slightly enlightened and just ask, Hey, this, this question. How do you feel about these questions? I'm going to ask the first lady. I mean, you're going to be here at this conference listening to me ask these questions. How do you feel about these questions? And then when the answers are exactly what I'm hearing out in from other membership, you kind of go, wait, why aren't you connecting with membership?
1: And that is exactly the conversation Ken and I had after that was they should have had a millennial vet their questions because <laughs> the way that this question was phrased was just really it, it was it was offensive if you are a millennial. I mean, I think to someone my age or even my dad's age, it would just sound fine, but that's not the world we live in anymore.
0: It sounds like it's the answer she gave is an answer that he should have heard many times if if he was truly curious yeah. about that.
2: Yeah. You know, if this was a focus of, you know, of the leadership and of the membership, then you, this is something you would already have an understanding of. And, and, you know, and to ask the first black first lady this question, I mean, like, as though she has somehow is so deeply connected with the she's a the the sole representative of the black community when there's many different black voices and African-American voices. In fact, this is what was so ironic about, you know, the Whitney Young Award and was the speech that Whitney Young gave in 1968 to the AIA was, I didn't know about it. So it shows my failing and my lack of understanding. But when I read the speech and I read the particular quote from the speech and I'm like, I couldn't believe it, it was like, it, you could you could have just put that speech up today and would have the same resonance. It just, it's just, this question has been dogging the profession for way over 50 years and it's been actually put to the leadership 50 years ago. So it just, it was galling that you would dare ask this, this um, African-American woman for solutions to problems with, it, with that we've created. And, and, you know, it was, it was frustrating.
1: Paul, are you familiar with the Whitney Young quote that we're talking about?
2: Uh, no.
1: Whitney Young Jr.? I just looked it up because I've seen it floating around social media for a while. In the 1968 AIA convention, it was called convention back then, Whitney Young Jr. said, this is a quote, You are not a profession that has distinguished itself by your social and civic contributions to the cause of civil rights. You are most distinguished by your thunderous silence and your complete irrelevance. mm so that was an address to the attendees of the 1968 convention. And here we are. Do math for me. Architects are bad at math. 50 years later, 50 years later, we're still asking these questions.
0: Like,
2: wow.
1: Come on. Have we really not improved since then? Oh my god.
2: You know, look, we're a profession that's built around the details, right? I mean, we have a we have a good understanding of the 30,000 square foot or the i or sorry, the 50,000 foot view or the, you know, we can see many different scales and and, and relevant details at different scales. And the one thing that was always it always seemed to miss in this convention is that or this conference is the details were always there's always and I say again it's just this the smallest details are the things that kind of resonate for me because just when the music that they're playing you can see a 50 to 60 year old white guy listening to you're just saying to yourself who does this profession who does this institute represent when the music even just from waiting for Michelle Obama to to talk it was like you know I like Bruce Springsteen don't get me wrong. <laughs> But it was like every fucking, you know, white guy trope of like, you know, from like from the 50 ish white guy crowd. And,
1: and again, to point out, this is not it. it it's only some people, not everyone. Um, Mike Davis, F.A.I.A., I think, was the one who tweeted, what is this? Just some random white guy's iPod on shuffle because it was like and his comment was about the song Carry On My Wayward Son yeah. by, I think, Kansas. And then several of us on Twitter just started going off about the music. It
2: was terrible. The music was terrible. That's how you get Jim Belushi playing the event. I mean, I know it. There's a different committee that organizes the con- the conference versus the leadership, but certainly you have to. I mean, you have to acknowledge that if you're expect to attract younger members to, to your institute into the profession. You can't wait for those younger members to start playing Kanye West when they're in the fucking sixties. I mean, cause that generation behind them, I mean, you know, 30 years down the road from me are gonna be going, well, Are you Kanye West? I mean, you, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> it sounds to me
0: that they are well intentioned. But
2: Absolutely. But Absolutely. they're they're
0: constantly revealing their kind of generational kind of Attitudes. Blind spots. Yeah, blind spots. Or or ignorance, if you want to call it. But it does sound, I mean, in the the world that we're living in right now, it does seem like they are really making an effort, albeit with a lot of, uh, you know... a lot of bumps. Yeah.
2: You know what it is? And you asked before about how was the feeling about Trump? I think that's what's, what has happened because of Trump and because of what uh, occurred in the 2016 election is this, is that there is a, there is a fine that I have, I certainly have a fine tuned sense of like, maybe it's my, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit of on a hair trigger, but now I just, I'm things, the small things, the small details are really resonating for me. So so the finest architects don't overlook the smallest detail and just kind of go, yeah, you know, ah, eh, it could have done better, but you know, it's already out the door. The drawings are out the door. I mean, that, that's just it, is that we're a profession that's built around these, the small, we obsessively look at the smallest details. And there is just that lack of the smallness of some of the things that you kind of go that when I think about, and you say, and I've, you know, I'm trying to connect this to the Trump thing is that, those little things matter to me because you know what? I'm tired of overlooking the things that would I would normally overlook because eh, whatever. Whatever. It's not a big deal. Because you know what? It matters a lot to, to a lot of other people. When they go to an event and you have a white guy playing the music, you have a white guy on stage asking a black woman a stupid question. You got white music playing all over the place. And there's just fucking white people everywhere saying the stupidest shit that you could possibly imagine. And I'm well, yeah. conscious of that. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think it's you're right. This was great. And I'm I'm only talking about I couldn't walk out of there and not be a contrarian about some of the small details because they did get the big things right, which I have to applaud them. This was, you know, forget the fact that the city is what it was. It's not a great city to have it in. But you know what? I think they got the big details. I think they got the overall kind of scheme down. I think they should keep focusing on the theme and keep rotating the the speakers around that theme, making sure to be more inclusive. But I think, you know, when I'm being critical, I'm not saying the AIA shit because they didn't get the small things right. I'm saying you've done a great job. Let's get some younger people in there to kind of make sure that this conference resonates with the younger group absolutely and and you know and
0: to make sure that we're not talking about these same issues in another 50 years
2: you know considering you know how
0: much we think we've evolved in the last few decades and when we when we come across incidents like like what you brought up with the question to michelle obama showing that we haven't you know i think that's more than enough justification to start becoming more critical of the small details
2: and i want to say one more thing Honestly, AIA, you know, I did pimp us on the, on the survey, but if you really need somebody to interview Michelle Obama next time, give us a call. We know how to handle <laughs> it. We're big league. We're big league, big league. It'll be tremendous. That would be true. It'd be the best.
1: All right. Let's talk about other good things. Good things. Good things. I'm trying to be positive here. The morning keynotes that I went to on that same day as Michelle was Francis Carré, Michael Murphy from Mass Design, Liz Diller from Diller Scafidio Renfrew, and Alejandro Aravena. And they each did like a 20-minute or so session. And I actually loved that format, just sort of brief and paint going, cycling quickly through them. I thought it was great overall.
2: Highlights? Highlights? I I wasn't familiar with Francis Carré's work. I wasn't.
1: And it's freaking awesome. It's <laughs> awesome. I gotta tell
2: you, <laughs> if he didn't say anything about like who built it, because they're really inseparable. Who built it and what it looks like are really completely connected. So that's it's hard to suggest that you could, because it's really important that who built it, how they built it, where it was built, and the amazing, the beautiful, the beauty of these projects were just just astounding. I mean, I think, you know, we have finally evolved in in this profession where I was saying this to somebody in my office. I said, you know, it used to be in the 1970s, we had the kind of solar architecture and it was kind of like earthy and it was just kind of like, it's like, you know, you're finding those really hippie catalogs that smell like your grandpa's old socks. And you kind of look at that architecture and I kind of discard it. And I think the same thing was for me, looking at architecture that dealt with really important issues on the subcontinent and other places in the world, I always thought it was like, "Oh, that's what those those do-gooders do; those those Peace Corps people did." And I think we've finally gotten what this conference has has demonstrated to me is that great design connected to great ideas around community and social and and just and dealing with severe issues in in other countries can be fucking amazing. I never walked in there expecting that. I actually walked out of there with a renewed sense of purpose that, you know, even in my own sense of what I wanted to be as an architect was altered by this conference. Yeah, I I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm like, I want to do work. I want to do great work that is connected to a message that's connected to a vision and that the people and in the, in the projects and those people are connected and only makes the design um, that much more rich and uh, that much more worth doing.
1: It's very local. I mean, he's educated in the United States, but worked with local builders and local materials. And yet it's incredibly beautiful, appropriate, really, really good architecture. You know, so impressive.
2: I mean the, the use of materials it was it was in, in a very good way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good description of it actually. Yeah,
2: I was never a big fan of right but I always appreciate that his materials were always drawn from the site and the same thing with uh Carey's projects. Many of those projects were built with local materials and an understanding of the how the material works when you take like he talked about this one particular material, once you take it out of the ground, it hardens and turns into this brick that you can actually, or this, this kind of brick that you can actually saw. And it was, it's like once it got exposed to air, the composition of the, of the material changed. So it was like being pulled out of the ground, like almost like a clay, but that once it was put into the air, it, it was altered. And it was like, what?
1: <laughs> and that's just based on a local understanding of historic building techniques and materials that are at hand.
0: Which is especially refreshing these days when, you know, I think it's it's easy with globalization to just kind of adopt standards around the world.
1: He said this thing that I tweeted that um, I don't think he considers himself some sort of social architect. He said basically all architecture is social. All of it is. It's all about building something for a society and within a society.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, Michael Murphy was great from Mass. I think that, you know, they had very much the same kinds of ideas. I think the difference between the two of them, there was a there was kind of a, a, a refinement in the, uh, the material, in the, in the detailing that Mass was doing. And I'm not sure how it, you know, the, the material was not as indigenous as uh, Carey's projects. And again, and go back to Carey, the one thing that you could see from Carey's work and the projects and how they functioned is that they were very rooted in the site. They were very rooted into the context of the, the, the geography and the location. And you really couldn't separate them. You couldn't pull his project out and put it in the middle of Oklahoma. Mass's work is was, for many instances, you could pick up their work and put it anywhere and it would function just as it would be just as connected to that particular location i thought though the interesting thing about murphy's talk is how he started talking about um his talk was probably the most political out of all of them and it because I think we're so attuned to the alt-right right now and, and this kind of return to nationalism throughout the world, he really started his talk off uh, very much in a very tantalizing way, talking about, uh, if you could talk about a Holocaust memorial in a tantalizing way, but just basically talked about the material and talked about Albert Speer and the, and the use of this particular stone and how the labor camps that were used to mine this stone to build uh, Nazi Germany. So it was right. You know, you can't you can't get away with, you know, if you're talking about Nazis, you're talking about Trump. You know, you just can't pull those two <laughs> things apart. And, you know, maybe not Trump so much, but just the kind of the 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 our current zeitgeist with this Pepe bullshit and all these other jagoffs. But then he, he talked about other projects and then he came back to what, you know, which he kind of, you could see, I mean, you knew what he was doing. So he talked about his other work and then he returned to the memorial and he talked about this really, this very lovely idea of, you know, about how in Jewish cemeteries, a stone is left and what the understanding of the stone and how it's connected to a father and a son. And the project was beautiful and it was very simple and it was um, very well fitted for the conference as well. So I thought that was fantastic.
1: It was. His talk was very good and very, I would say, as opposed to Francis Carre, who just sort of stood up and spoke more or less off the cuff. It felt like Michaels was very polished, but it was very successful, I think.
2: Very well constructed.
1: And then Liz Diller got up and was, frankly, boring.
2: Clunker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a clunker. I mean, it was pretty obvious what happened here, Paul. I mean, you know, we were, everyone was criticizing the AIA. What? No woman on the, no woman keynote, blah, you know, so we were. everybody was, they were feeling the pressure and they're like, ah, jam, we're going to take this square peg and we're going to make it fit that triangle hole. I mean, and that's what they did. We couldn't, after you're done, you're like, wait, we had three architects up there talking about projects relating to you know communities and people and context and and you know social issues that are re, you know really I mean people in a way that made people feel con- that felt connected and then you had Liz up there talking about the highline and and then you know what the highline became and then she got up there and she was what was sad was that she was apologizing for something that it was an, I'm sorry but I'm not sorry <laughs> she was telling everyone in the audience that they had no idea that this was going to to happen as though if you don't know how long the high line has been thought about in architecture, then you just aren't paying attention because all you got to do is go to Stephen Hall's pamphlets. He's been thinking about it. All you got to do is look, all you got to go and do is uh, pull up the education of an architect uh, from Cooper Union. They've been thinking about it. So it's been thought about, it's been thought about for over just, probably over close to 40 years now it's been it's been under consideration for development in some shape or form so the fact that they didn't anticipate that this kind of development was going to happen around it it only demonstrates how either one of two things Complete BS or a complete failure to understand how architecture operates in a city. And does anyone really think that? I mean, I love their work. I've always loved their work. I still have flesh. I will never give up that book. I still am endlessly fascinated by their projects. But you can't stand up there and sell that kind of bullshit to people and and have them believe that architects don't understand how their work impacts a city and how development works off of that. (laughs) I mean, it's it's completely just—it's ridiculous. And so I felt that, you know, and she showed a bunch of images of, uh, you know, all the development around there. And it was just kind of like, oh, this is happening now. And there's this, oh, here's how it's being sold. Here's this white family on their on their polar bear rug, you know, looking over the high line. And I mean, the only thing that was great about her when she talked about the high line, and this is even funny, you know, knowing their work and how they've used the ideas of looking at people and being looked at in various projects from the restaurant to other works around surveillance and how, how we're surveilled. It was strange to hear her say that it was surprising to them to see how there are these opportunities to publicly display one's body or be looked at in your home from the high Line. I mean, you've got all this development happening around the High Line. You've got a hotel that bridges over the High Line and you've got photos. She shows photos of either people having sex in the hotel from the High Line or people just exhibitions happening from the hotel. So the idea that, you know, the one thing that surprised them was the one thing that they kind of have, you know, have built some level of work around, some measure of work around. And I fail to see how I mean, I love the High Line. I think it's one of the most important urban parks to and you know it's it's constantly being replicated all over the world and i think it's one of the most important urban developments in understanding how to reuse infrastructure that has come you know in this century but for her to stand up there and have us believe that they didn't understand how these things work it's it's there's just it's false
1: you know what if they just needed a woman in the morning session which one imagines that we did obviously and i'm gonna plug the sessions podcast here. They should have picked Elizabeth Timmy from, for those of you that are listening, Connect sessions number 13. We spoke to Elizabeth Timmy about um, her work in LA. And that also would have been really interesting because it's because um, it's Los Angeles. It, it would have been a nice fit, I think, in with all of the other speakers.
0: So did Liz Diller's presentation feel like a like a school lecture? I mean, that's that's how it sounds. Oh,
1: God, yes totally academic maybe
0: she pulled it out of her uh maybe that's the talk that she's been giving
2: yeah she stood up behind a podium where everybody else was standing up front on stage she stood behind a podium and riffed, uh, a handful of papers it, it felt like a lecture she could have given at Columbia colombians probably done several times i mean she's felt more comfortable i've seen her at the aia in new york right near washington square park that their office i saw them there like three years ago both her and, and ricardo and and it was a uh, it was great. They were there they talking about a book and, you know, I love hearing them talk. It was just,
0: it wasn't what you were expecting at no,
2: the, given the context. Yeah. Given the context, I think, you know, and it, it was pretty obvious. It was like this person, this person, then, oh, and then this person. So, it almost should have been that she should have gone first and the other three should have gone because then I mean, you could easier to kind of put her aside. But again, it goes back to how do you understand how these things work in a conference and who are you talking to? And, and you know, you could put these pieces around, uh, these puzzle pieces around until they fit and it could have fit. It would have been a better juxtaposition. Like here's this, you know, here's this multi billion dollar project that's or here's this multi million dollar project that's generated five billion dollars in development around the Highline. And then you have these other projects. It's a nice little kind of comparison experience. But you put her in the kind of like towards the end and then you deal with Arvena and then, you know, he's doing his own wonderful, crazy thing that pissed people off, which was fantastic.
1: Arvena was amazing to me. I loved his talk. I mean, the talk was great. Just he was talking about basically about how his work goes, what the concerns are around things like funding and, you know, the real sort of meat and potatoes of of being an architect trying to get buildings built. But what I loved about it that I think there's a good discussion topic to be had that's related to how someone like Francis Carre works is his presentation was done on a whiteboard. So they rolled a whiteboard up onto the stage and he drew on it as he went little diagrams of the things he wanted to emphasize and wrote some lists of things. And thanks to the nature of technology, the cameras were able to zoom in in such a way that we, of course, it was like we were standing two feet away from the whiteboard. So to me, that integration of a very low tech mode of working with very high tech, high density, high definition presentation of it. I feel like that's something we as architects need to be able, we need to handle the whole spectrum, right? We need to be able to just do the most simple clay brick and also talk about how it affects globally how we live in the world like how you know I I just felt like it was a wonderful low-tech high-tech combination and I heard people grumble about it afterwards too a lot of people were like oh that's such a gimmick oh that was just so like why didn't he show pictures of his
0: buildings the whiteboard was a gimmick that's what people were saying that's what people said Uh, it sounds very similar to his approach to architecture though I mean just uh without overthinking anything
2: you know that's, that was so, so, I mean, if there is an unintended consequence of putting Liz Diller before him was that the juxtaposition of the two presentations. So if you want us to just look at it stylistically, the idea that somebody, you know, he left the airport that he, he came to the conference probably right from the airport. All right. And he
1: had his kids with him. And his
2: kids with him. They're sitting in the front row. And he did a presentation. I got to tell you, he probably could do that presentation, that same presentation tomorrow, half drunk on fucking tequila. I mean, you know, it was such (laughs) an easy thing to do because the, the beauty, and, you know, again, It's something that I appreciated about his presentation is that it wasn't overly pretentious. You're having a conversation with five or six thousand people. How many people were there? And you're really having conversation between your hand, the people and the board and be able to talk to the things that you're drawing. It's such an easy presentation to do. You probably didn't even have anything written out. He just went and talked to the board by talking, talking to us by talking to the board and having that conversation between the three parties. It was just fascinating.
1: Well, and it was it's brave in a way, because think about yourself giving a talk. I've given talks at AIA National. In fact, you know, you prepare for these things, but for him to just stand in front of a crowd with a blank surface and intend to fill it in front of people live, that's a really brave thing to do. And he, of course, did it perfectly. And the reason he did it so well is because he knows his shit. He knows what he's talking about. There's no pretense. He just needs to talk about what he knows. It was fantastic. So the four speakers, overall, I think it worked really well together. What was interesting was that was the morning session or one thing that was interesting. That was the morning session. And as soon as that ended, everyone left the hall and many, many people, Ken and I included, went and like grabbed a coffee and a bagel or a smoothie in our case, and then immediately got in line for Michelle Obama because the Michelle, the line for Michelle Obama was, was they told us they would open the doors an hour before she spoke. And so the line started forming pretty much immediately as soon as people could get into it. And while we were standing there, we had some great conversations with people standing in line for an hour and a half or whatever it was. And the highlight of it to me was that we spotted close to the doors across the room, we spotted Phil Freelon, who was on our episode, I think it was 99 or 98. And Ken and I sort of looked at each other and said, there's Phil. And then Ken, you pick up the story from there.
2: <laughs> so we walk over and uh, introduce myself right away. And he knew exactly who we were which was great. And I told him, I said, I told you I wanted to come and shake your hand. And um, so he he quickly grabbed his wife, Nina, and said, Nina, this is uh, uh, Ken and Donner from the podcast. And uh, Nina came over and she was really, really excited. And and, uh, I was like, wow. And she said this, she goes, we listen to your podcast several times. They love the podcast.
1: <laughs> as soon as Phil said, Nina, these are the ones who did the podcast, her face lit up. Yeah. Her face totally lit up. And she was like, oh, we loved it. We've listened to it several times. It was wonderful. It was wow. so cool.
0: Wow. Wow, what an honor. I mean, those two are both creative, like, superstars. I mean, Superstars. That... Yeah. Superstars. Their entire family
2: is. <laughs> I think one of the sons is running for mayor of uh, Raleigh-Durham. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow,
1: And, you know, because of talking with them, we got to meet Churchill, who we then sat with during the whole Michelle talk. And we spoke to several other people over the course of the conference about Phil and Nina Freelon. And um, the same words came out of everyone's mouths, that they are wonderful people. They're just wonder Working for them is a wonderful experience. They're incredibly giving and gracious in everything that they do. Like, they're the heroes that we want representing AIA. I mean, Phil representing AIA. Nina has no time for this silly architecture stuff, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Good for her. Wow. That's, uh, that's the best kind of feedback. That's amazing.
1: It was fantastic. And then I will also just mention that because using our podcast connections, we saw Todd Williams walk by and I said, I, you know, darted out of line and ran up to him and said, Todd, Donna from the podcast. Great to see you. I don't know that he actually recognized me, but I said, so are you excited to see Michelle speak? And he said, oh yes. And of course I'll see her tomorrow for work. (laughs) <laughs> because he's doing the library.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that was about a week before the uh, the designs were unveiled.
1: Right. Exactly. That were just unveiled. So I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You actually do have a personal relationship with Michelle Obama. And I could not be more jealous.
0: <laughs> oh, I would love to hear what they're like as clients.
1: Oh, I know. Wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, oh, Michelle
2: God. talked a little bit about the uh, the process and, and, you know, seeing different models and seeing the structure and seeing. So they seem pretty excited. But yeah.
1: And well, something that hit the news this week was someone on Twitter posted that a little brief video of Barack presenting the project, the library, to some other people and made a comment about getting all, all the, their hearts started going pitter-patter when Barack mentioned that the Metro station will be right here. Like this is a president, a former president who actually cares about the fact that there's a Metro station nearby so that people can take mass transit to the building. I mean, like they obviously understand cities and how they work and how they are communities of people. It's it's clear as day.
0: Well, good to know they're still around.
1: And will be. I mean, one of the other things Michelle said was that in a way she's she's actually really happy that they are beyond the mud fight of politics. And that's the term she used was mud fight, so that now they can actually do good work in the world.
0: And kite surf. <laughs> and
2: kite surf.
1: <laughs> well, you got to do that to rejuvenate yourself, for fighting the good fight in the city. So, Ken, what other highlights were there? Because you were there longer than me. What other highlights did you see or enjoy?
2: Well, I was there for the business meeting and I tweeted out a couple of items that uh, that occurred at the business meeting. We were voting on some resolutions and, you know, there was a resolution that's stating our values. And it was interesting. Out of the you know, X number of people there casting ballots and who knows how many, you know, there's a lot of ballots that are cast for people who don't show up. But there was one regarding the statement of values and actually 90 90 delegates voted against the restatement of our values.
1: (laughs) Which, you know, Paul, to bring it back to what you said, the AIA is trying. I really have faith and i think they deserve a lot of criticism. We deserve a lot of criticism, but I do feel like we are trying and we are moving in the right direction. But the fact that 90 members could vote against a statement of values like this, and we'll have to put a link to it in the show notes, like, oh,
0: come on. Nothing shocks me these days.
2: No, no. You know, that's the thing is that if you're stating values about positive things, things that we want to represent, things we want to represent in our community, which is, you know, value for people of different backgrounds, different genders, if we want to just acknowledge that those are realities, somehow, I mean, yeah, I guess everything is political, but respect for each other should not be a political statement. And then somehow 90 individuals, or it could be just one fat white guy sitting in the crowd, you know, who holds 90 delegates just voting against it. Who knows? I don't know. But we had a a handful of resolutions that were, one of them was pretty close. It was, um, having to do with something like specialty discipline, specialties within a discipline. And that one was pretty interesting. It was pretty close. But the AIA is looking at credentialing specialties within the discipline. So there was a kind of a, uh, just a broad statement about how the membership would like to consider those and uh, some kind of, not so much ground rules, but some kind of a a framework for discussion. So when the AIA, the committee that's discussing this currently takes a look at it, that it it keeps these principles in mind. So that was an interesting one. was 184 abstentions. And if those 184 had voted against it, it wouldn't have passed. So that's how close it was. But it seemed to, you know, it seemed to be an interesting idea, obviously fraught with some kind of um, some complications, but that was pretty good. And then we had the inevitable happen. And I have to say that the AIA has finally gotten, you know, again, they, the AIA takes two steps forward every, I think. And um, one of the things that happened is that I will take full responsibility for this happening because I'm the one <laughs> that did this last year. I'm the one who, when the uh, 9-11 truthers got up there and presented their resolution to uh, open up the uh, the NIST or uh, look at the, um, the NIST report again for uh, World Trade Center 7, I'm the one that got up there and said, you know what, we can't do anything about these uh, resolutions, but we shouldn't have to suffer the indignity of having these uh, jerks on the floor of the expo, of the conference hall. So um, this year, they were were not on the floor. They were excluded. So the AIA did a great job with that.
1: Before you move on from 9-11 truthers, one of the questions that was posed to all of the candidates for office for the upcoming year was, should we consider some kinds of measures to prevent proposals that have been beaten several times from being reintroduced every year. And it was a specific reference without saying their names to the nine eleven 11 truth or people. Yeah.
2: So to slow the role of the 9-11ers, the president, Tom Vornier, brought in, uh, they brought on a professional paid parliamentarian and she sat on stage to advise the leadership on how to, how to deal. So they uh, instituted Robert's Rules of Order. And um, I love Robert's Rules of Order and hate it at the same time. But it's great for tactical reasons, and this being one of them, is that after two minutes, you had two minutes to do your presentation. If after two minutes you kept rambling on with your inanities, they cut your mic, and that's what happened. So one of these jerkwads was up there, and he was actually the one presenting the amendment, of uh, the resolution, and uh, he was like, two minutes? They're so like, two minutes were up, and he kept talking. They went, cut the mic, and they cut his mic. So we had that vote, and it was roundly defeated. I mean, there was a lot of people pissed off at this organization. Apparently, they collected names, like they people were thinking that, oh, I, I'd like to get some more information about what you're talking about, so they signed up on lists. And apparently, those names were actually used in promotional material to suggest that they were actually in support of the reopening of the World Trade Center collapse. So that really pissed off a lot of people because they were just like, no, we don't, con- we're not supporting this resolution. We're actually just wanting to get more information. And uh, so that happened. And then a couple of crazies got up there. And then uh, one of the members uh, from New York, Tony Sharippa. If anyone watches The Sopranos, they might recognize the last name Sharippa. I think it's Stephen Sharippa's brother <laughs> from The Sopranos. And he got up there. And, and again, he's he does his thing and kind of shuts it down. And uh, I think. I've been talking to other members about how to resolve this in next year. And I have a real fast solution. So i plan on getting up there and taking care of it. Can't have this happen again. So nice.
1: Engaged members. That's what the AIA says it wants. And if it truly wants engaged members, I think Ken is there too. <laughs> oh yeah. Ken will show up as will many, many other people. Yeah.
2: I was signed up to go before Michelle Obama was even on the list. And I, I that's, Probably one of the reasons why I'm really, as an East Coaster, I'm really getting tired. And I think you might see some baseball bats next year in New York City if this if these guys oh, think stop. they're going get good. <laughs> Not for <from> me. <laughs> gonna, I'm just saying. <laughs> You're gonna bring the jersey. I'm just saying it's in New York. Oh, okay. You want to? You want to? You, you want to bring crazy? New York knows yeah. how to handle crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't imagine that coming again. Well, I think we're all uh, we're all relying on you. Yeah. Bring your jiu-jitsu skills.
1: Yeah. That's right. And the Jersey. I just want to do a very quick shout out to Kurt Nicewender, previous uh, Archonnect Sessions podcast guest in speaking about the Flint water crisis, and hopefully future podcast Sessions guest, Laura Teagarden. Both of them won National AIA Young Architect Awards, which is a big deal every year. So round of applause for the two of them. And um, Ken and I went to the Ceremony where they got their awards and it was lovely and there was a champagne toast that I took a little too much advantage of I think, um, no? but you know you have a whole bunch of glasses of champagne on a table what do you expect to happen <laughs> but I want to take uh, at that same event the granddaughter of Paul Revere Williams stood up and spoke and her name is Karen Hudson and she had spoken at the the keynote morning event when Paul Williams was awarded the gold medal and then she came back to this this other award ceremony to speak a little more about him and it was wonderful in the way that she basically just stood up and said I wanted to because this award was on was awarded posthumously where usually these medals are not she wanted to stand up and say, I just want to give you a sense of who Paul Revere Williams was as a person. And she said, you know, he was my grandfather. And to me, he was my grandfather. He, if I got an A in in school, I got a silver dollar that he pulled out of his pocket and handed to me. And, you know, I always thought of him as the the man who would would play with me and had time for me and would always pay attention to what I was saying. Like she just spoke about him as a human, which was wonderful to hear in his physical absence, of course.
2: Yeah. And I think you know, I think she did a great job of, of speaking a little bit of truth to us in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is not something that I think everyone understands. And I think, you know, I've only understood what it means to try to reconcile the past from my experience here in the Twin Cities at my church with a gay pastor who was uh, an associate pastor for so long. And then when he was made full, when he was ordained as a full pastor, the president of the Lutheran church came and ordained him. And she could have we could have just had an easy ceremony and could have gotten his cloth and could have been a great celebration. But she took pains to, to talk about the failure of the church, to acknowledge and to accept and to honor him with full pastorship and understood the, the homophobia that existed in the church for so long. And I think, you know, there's... It's great that, you know, Paul was first Black architect to be included in the AIA. It was great that he was the first African-American to receive an F. But I think at the same time, you know, we can point to those things as great milestones for, for uh, achievement for Black Americans and in, in the profession of architecture. But I think there was... Something a little bit lacking in acknowledging the if you were trying to bridge gaps, I think part of it, even if you don't feel, I think you have to show some some sense of humility and an appreciation for what he had to go through to be an architect in uh, the time that he was an architect, and to apologize for not awarding him and the understanding that his the body of work was you know, very diverse and it was, it achieved everything it needed to. And it still stands today for, for the beauty that he was able to create in a time that he wasn't allowed to, to be a real full contributing and and respected member the way um, he is now. I think there's some sense that the profession could have owned that and said you know what we honor him but we failed in in our in our ability to honor him when he was alive and and you know some sense of an apology and i think having her at the second event to kind of talk to that was really refreshing because she didn't pull back she told some measure of truth to us and i think we need to hear it and again it goes to the you know it was it was kind of funny she was standing there and she, i think she said was she a, an english teacher or a teacher or a writer i mean i know she wrote the book on the biography on, on paul but i think She's standing there, leaning on this chair, and she's looking into the monitor. She goes, I'm sorry. She goes, but I'm a writer, and I have to tell you, it's spelled metal on the photo of Paul, and it's spelled gold metal, a winner.
1: (laughs) AIA a gold medal winner. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's yeah. like, did nobody proofread this? She didn't say that, but she was very gracious about it. But it's like, come
2: on. Yeah. That's, so that, when on. I talk about what I'm talking, <laughs> that's kind of the essence of what I was getting at before is that the small details, they yeah. matter. And yeah. because would that have happened had it been somebody else? Don't know. Probably not. Who knows? But it does matter. It mattered to her. It mattered enough for her not to overlook it and to say something about it. And she didn't just say it once. She talked about it twice. And they finally pulled the image off the screen because it just was it was frustrating her that she was looking at this photo of her grandfather and seeing this word spelled wrong. So that's what I what I'm saying, you know, the things that seem rather benign to someone like myself, I I totally missed it. I didn't even see that it was spelled wrong. It took some and that's kind of the kind of the essence of what I've been saying about what happened. That you know, when white guys run things, we have these blind spots. We don't see these things that are occurring when you know we make up the entire planet. And it takes someone of her stature to see something, and she clearly was not going to gloss over it. And she pointed it out. And I think that's that was kind of that's kind of indicative of our profession. It, it takes it's going to take more of that to happen before people are going to actually finally realize we need to actually change things.
0: Well, I think that's a a nice and a uh, appropriate way to end this conversation. I think that that's, as you said, small details do matter. And I think that it's those small details that we really need to be paying attention to and calling out.
1: It was a good conference, even though I was only there for the really, for the one day. It, you know, I think everyone, I, I honestly think, and i co workers that went and other people I've spoken to, I feel like the conference every year really does sort of refresh people and remind us why are we architects? Why do we do this? What are some of the bigger topics that we sometimes get lose sight of while we're dealing with door schedules and value engineering and all that? So it was definitely successful in that way. And, um, uh, I'm looking forward to New York next year. My biggest fear in going down to Florida was, of course, that I would be eaten by an alligator. So I don't have to worry about that in New York.
0: Or someone could have eaten your face off. I've heard that that happens in Florida <laughs> oh, too. Oh
1: God, Florida man, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm I'm a little jealous that I wasn't there with you guys next year. It sounded like a, like a great event. I mean, I, we're always we're always very critical of the AIA, but I think it would be irresponsible of us to not. Yeah. You guys yeah. are both card carrying members and devoted and passionate about this field that we're all working in. And so as critical as we are, I think that it's all for a good, good
2: purpose, good cause.
1: Absolutely. Ken, final word.
2: I'll save my vegan criticism for when they do it. Uh, the convention in uh, South Dakota next, uh, the year after. So no,
1: no more small, no more small markets. And we had a great <laughs> vegan meal. We had a great vegan yeah. meal. No, we in, had to uh, go
2: somewhere to get that. I'm thinking, you know, I think the when they have them at these convention centers, they're so limited by what they're allowed to have. And it's, you know, I mean, whatever. That's the great thing about being in our city.
1: Just one tiny personal story. But yeah, we to find a vegan restaurant, we drove out 45 minutes or so outside the city to Winter Park, Florida, which happened coincidentally to be the place where... A church was built in about 1997 or 98 it, which is one of the first projects I worked on as a young architect fresh out of Cranbrook. I w- went to Philadelphia, worked at this firm. we had a job in Winter Park, Florida, and I finally got to go see this church that I had done the CDs for <laughs> 20 some oh, wow. years ago. So yeah it was a, it was that was actually very cool. It was a nice nice time.
0: Very cool. I'm surprised that a vegan would be able to even have enough energy to get 45 minutes out of the city. <laughs>
2: Believe me, it was hard. Just teasing. I almost gnawed her face off. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was uh, It was a good time and good to get out to this little sort of bedroom community outside of Orlando.
0: Well, thanks guys for uh, sharing your, your tales and the experience at, at the conference. I will join you guys next year in New York, I promise. Great. It'll be fun. If you want me to or not. Yes, we absolutely do. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody out there for listening. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, consider rating us on iTunes or leaving some feedback. Talk to everyone next time.